Hey, Dave here. Before diving into this episode, I thought it would be useful to explain how we select the people who are featured on the Stories from the Pitch podcast. Sometimes it's the contributors who record the interviews who make a suggestion for someone they think should be highlighted. Quite often, it's the editing team that comes together and selects an artist whose life provides an excellent template for what to do, what not to do, or quite often both. And still other times, it's listeners like you who suggest people whose backstories you want to hear. The suggestions always come from someone other than the individual being featured, and it often takes quite a while to connect for an interview. The piece that follows is a great example of a performer we've been trying to connect with for several years. This is a guy that many performers from around the world know, love, and have learned from, either by way of his example or from advice he's passed along as he shared his passion for the art form. In fact, so many people think so highly of him that he was selected as one of two people to be inducted into the Busker Hall of Fame in 2016. Bit by bit, we're doing our best to capture this largely undocumented world, and hopefully this explanation sheds a bit more light on how things work and why we select the people who are featured. All right, let's get to it. I got a nickname in Adelaide just like two weeks ago from a guy I'd just met who said, Jedi Drum Master, and I don't know what that means, but... Yeah, master of drama. Yeah. Yeah, the teacher. Yeah. And do you find that an easy role to fall into? I can't help it. If I see something that is very simple and easy to change and would make such an incredible... It it screams in my head yeah. <laughs> to go, I need to say this. You need yeah, to yeah. Just, just... If you swap those lines just that much... You like dissect um, yeah. every little piece of yeah. things, and you can see the. I found out there's a few people who got a license for Darling Harbour purely so that they could do a show in front of me, <laughs> because I can't help it if I watch the show, and they'd come over and go, "What did you think?" Uh-huh. But they haven't asked for help. They haven't, but they specifically gone there so that if I see their show, I'll go. You really should change that bit, and oh, that bit's really excellent. But these two bits need to be swapped around, or whatever. Yeah, but I did find out that three guys in a row they turned up they did one show in front of me they never worked Darling Harper again they, <laughs> they just did it to get me to analyse their show uh huh did you help them? yeah of course can't stop it can't help it Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. J.P. McKendry loves street theater. It's as simple as that. His love for the art form makes him a fan of not only being on the pitch himself, but also of the people who choose to embrace the challenges and opportunities that busking provides. This passion for the craft likely comes from his innate understanding of street technique and his fascination with seeing these mechanics in play. Destiny must have also played a hand in things, as JP was just the right age to appreciate the art form during the two weeks he spent watching some of the world's best street performers at Expo 88. But this inspiration wasn't enough. Rather, it was his internal drive and willingness to do hundreds upon hundreds of shows that earned him his chops as a performer. Magic Brian sat down with JP while they were both doing shows at the Dubai Marina Street Performers Festival to investigate a little bit more about this battle-axe-wielding busker and discover why the right choices weren't always the easiest choices in a life that's filled with so many great stories from the pitch. Usually when I do these, it's over a couple beers, you know, I just sit and have some beers. But it's in the middle of the afternoon now and we're working tonight. 
so we can't, unfortunately. We can, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't. Right. We don't have beers. All we have is the rest of that scotch and some rum. <laughs> and that's really not a good idea. No. Now, anyway, it is, uh, what is today? The Monday the 21st? Yes. And we are in Dubai performing at the Marina Mall, Dubai Marina Mall Street Festival. Yes. And I'm here with the one and only JP Koala. And we've finally done it. Yes, finally. Finally. Two years, is it? When, when did we do Stockholm? More than two years, I think. Whenever we did Stockholm, that was the first attempt, and we never made it Three happen. years. Yeah, anyway. I had to surprise you with it, because you don't like to plan. Yeah. What was that? This morning? Yes, that we did two morning. o'clock. Yeah. Great, done. Done, easy. Excellent. All right. Let's talk about how you get started. I started... I moved to Canada when I was 11. Oh, really? And lived in Ottawa for a year. Huh. And when I first... Why moved, did you move to Canada? Uh, my dad worked for Department of Communications in Canberra, Australia. Uh-huh. And Ottawa's the same government thing, and they did a swap. Same guy in the same position swapped governments for a year. Oh, wow. So I ended up going to Disneyland, which was fun, on the way. Two weeks in LA. And then landed in Canada in March in minus 15 and snow up to the roof. Were you excited about it? About the idea? Yeah, of loved it. I had a great time. But for the first couple of weeks, we were in basically a hotel room, a little flat thing. Uh-huh. And I didn't have any thermal clothes, big ski gear and whatever. And my mum bought me a book that taught me how to juggle. Technically, my elder sister had just learned and she taught me. How many people in your family? Uh, I've got two elder sisters, uh-huh. five years older and three years older. But I basically had two weeks in a hotel room in Ottawa. And your mum's like, we got to do something. You can't go out. And I was driving her nuts as yeah. an 11-year-old and learned how to juggle. And then walked straight into a school two weeks later and didn't know anyone. So went to whatever break time, lunch time and whatever. And you go, went out, started juggling, practicing. It's what I've been doing every day for two weeks. Mm-hmm. People come over and go, what are you doing? Oh, well, do you want to learn how to juggle? <laughs> so you're friendly. Yeah, it was a great way to meet people. Yeah. And you took to it right away, juggling. Yeah. Yeah, easy. I was always, like, lots of sport. Pick a sport, and I played it. And coordination. Uh, and then two years later, after that, because I kept bouncing schools, so I kept doing that. What, in Canada? Uh, I went to, because I was a board of primary high school, so did six months of a primary school had summer your summer holidays and went on camps and whatever else did the normal North American kid summer holiday program and then went into a high school a different school but always met people through juggling and then moved back to Canberra did it again and then went to Expo 88 Uh in Brisbane so what are you like 13? and I was 13 13 that's where I saw a load of performers didn't watch the expo at all. Went for two weeks straight. My parents were out of the country. And I was staying with my aunt in Brisbane. And it was a two-week school holiday. And I went every day for two weeks and just watched street shows. Right. Front row of all of these shows. Did you, when you were in Canada, did you see any street performers? I saw one. And it took me a while to actually remember that I had. Uh-huh. But I don't remember where. It was Ottawa somewhere. Yeah. And all I remember is that he had... Uh, little moustache goatee uh, uh-huh. thing and was juggling 
Yeah. Yeah. Sat, watched him because he was juggling. Yeah. Roll a bowler. But I have no idea who he was. So when you started juggling, you just were doing it for fun. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts of no. that you wanted before? It's just like it's a all. fun thing to do. You like sports. I was fun. So. I was very good at it coordination test and it was a great way to meet people because I could teach them yeah and, uh, and you teach like them teach. how to pass and teach them how to yeah getting getting people to a stage where we can interact and do passing and run arounds and whatever else with it yeah cool so then when you go back and you're watching Expo 88 now you're just locked in because you want to see jugglers uh, yeah but the biggest thing was watching how they got a crowd and I understood what they were doing. Uh-huh. That was my favorite thing of just sitting there watching how they interacted with people and they built a crowd. Did you know when you went? Did, were you specifically going to see the street performers? Did you know street performers were going to be there? No, no. I used to always go stay with my aunt in Brisbane, my yeah. mum's sister. I got a two-week pass to this thing that was walking distance down the road, and I talked her into letting me take all of my savings out of my bank account by the end of that. A uh, hundred and thirty bucks or whatever, <laughs> and buying a unicycle. Oh shit! And over that two weeks, I learned how to unicycle by just bombing down her backyard. It was a really steep hill backyard, uh-huh. and just getting on it and going that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cool. So you go in, you're watching the street performers, and you're watching them gather a crowd. Yeah, this is what's starting to fascinate you. Every single day, doing that and seeing what they did, and then. I chatted to a couple of them. Mr. Peepy was lovely. I adored it. I like ping pong ball mouth juggling with that straight away from that one. Yeah. Um, Mr. Peepy's just wonderful. Who else? Um, Waldo and Woodhead uh-huh. were there, and I can't remember anyone else, but I saw a lot of shows at Expo Radio. But Waldo and Woodhead, the double jugglers, were just, yeah. I loved it. I so loved two that really interaction. And Mr. Peepy, yeah, for his character and his crowd build. Uh huh. And then I went straight back to Canberra and started busking. Really? Almost immediately. Right um, away. Yeah. Three fire torches. Uh huh. Heidi, want to see a trick? Heidi, want to see a trick? Heidi, so were you doing kind of like a little walk by show? Yeah. 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 Did With you three have, torches. Do you have any fear going into it? You just like this is great. I'm At that this. age, I didn't. You're I 14. Just, so still 13 still 13 yeah okay and I no problems just like I knew Canberra pretty well Doug Anthony all stars were busking in Canberra at the time who were they which was very cool Uh, they're an Australian comedy band okay and I worshipped them for years afterwards like I used to always be front row of their shows like they're indoor performers but whenever they performed I followed them around the world and ended up meeting them in Edinburgh years later which was really great yeah but 13 I yeah, just doing walk by and then moved to Melbourne. Uh huh. And when I moved to Melbourne. How old were you when you moved to Melbourne? 14. Okay. And didn't work for a little while and then summer kicks in. And I did the same thing, walk by on a corner for ages. Was there many people street performing in Australia at the time? Uh, only for the summer seasons. Uh huh. So you'd seen some of it growing up or heard about it? No. No. Expo 88. Really? That was, was really. I. The guy I saw in Canada when I was 11, I don't really remember. Yeah. It was just some juggler yeah, yeah, to yeah. me. Yeah. It wasn't Thinking back on it, it was definitely a show and a circle show. Sure. I was a kid sitting in the front row in a park somewhere in yeah. Ottawa. Didn't resonate that this is a... No, a it was Expo 88 that yeah. did it. And then the next year, a load of performers came back and worked in Burke Street Mall. Uh-huh. And I'd been working on the corner for a couple of months 
and then I'd sit and watch their shows every day, front row of their shows. And that was Drew Franklin, William Lee, who else was there? Waldo, Rex Boyd turned up. Yes. And uh, yeah, I can't remember at the moment. But over two summers in Melbourne, I got to see a load of shows. Mm-hmm. And used to just sit and watch and let them do... They did the primetime, lunchtime thing. And they'd sit and chat, especially Drew and William would sit and chat. They gave you some time. Yeah. 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 Nice. And it's because the front row every day, I was always there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they'd go to the pub, they'd finish, like it dies off at five o'clock or whatever, and they'd, they'd all disappear to the pub. And I'd do three shows back to back. Right. Circle shows. Were you... Uh <laughs> were you doing what they were doing? Were you taking their lines? Just I was a juggler and a technical juggler. Rex Boyd was a, a perfect technical juggler at that time. So I based the structure of my show on Rex. <clears throat> uh-huh. And I still... There's a couple of things that are still from Rex that I use now. Yeah. And I based the verbal on William Lee. That was really it. Yeah, just the... I'm going to do something, but That's not first. yet. Yeah. But first, but first, first. but first. Uh-huh. But my first ever show was at standard juggling. Three balls, four balls, five balls. Three clubs, four clubs. Three flaming torches. That's it. Yeah. And the torch routine, the, the set of tricks that I did was what I was doing walk by. was the set of tricks. Waiting for someone to stop, do a set of tricks, present, get a dollar. Yeah. Redid the torches, do it again. Yeah. <laughs> and that became my finale. Uh-huh. So what, so that first time you decided to not do the walk-by, to stop it, you remember that show when you just said, I'm going to do this, this is going to be the... Nope. <laughs> not even close. Yeah. I just did it. I did so many shows at that time. Yeah. The first real time that I remember doing performing uh-huh. and being nervous about it was I moved to England two years later. When I was sixteen, uh-huh. and Get I got sent. Uh, yeah, I get sent coaches. to um, the middle of nowhere because the school wouldn't take me in Cambridge. My parents moved to Cambridge, and the school wouldn't take me there halfway through the school year, and then somewhere else did. So I ended up going from Melbourne, where I was doing street shows. <coughs> I was doing training with circus holders three times a week, oh. uh, doing classes with them, and I was put in the adult class because my juggling was yeah. so high. Wow. I was doing theatre sports at school and I was doing backstage, head of the theatre backstage at school in Melbourne. Melbourne. So you're fully immersed in everything. Just arts. And then ripped out. Ripped out. Dropped in. Sent to a town which has a population of 26 people and a boarding school. Oof. One shot. I think it was like 20 houses. (laughs) I went nuts. I went insane there. All of a sudden, stopped training with acrobatics, stopped training with anything. The only thing I could keep up was juggling. How long did you know you were going to be stuck there for? Another year? Uh, no, it was. I moved there in January, and it was to the end of year 10. GCSEs is the English system, and doing those exams. And then I was going to move back to Cambridge. And I ended up taking flack for something someone else did to get expelled so I could get out of that place. Ah. Yeah expelled from that school for no reason uh-huh. and loved it was so happy yeah. went back did exams and then moved to Cambridge and over that summer in Cambridge that was where I hadn't done shows in six months and I found a juggling club over the summer holidays and hung out and mucked around with them 
and talked about doing street shows, doing street. Yeah, I do, I do street I do shows. Street yeah. shows yeah. And they're all sitting there going, "Well, this is six weeks now. We haven't seen you actually do a show." Mm-hmm. And I started smoking in the boarding school as well. Picked up every bad habit I have from the <laughs> nightmare school. And was hanging out with these guys. Sunday night was the juggling club. And one night I went, can I have some cigarettes? I don't have any. And this guy's like, I will supply you with cigarettes all night tonight if you go out tomorrow and do a street show. And I'll always, yep, and I'll always do what I say. And I went, yep. And I went out in Cambridge and I found a shop front that was shut on the busiest mall. It's a very narrow lion's yard. It's a very narrow street. Yeah. And I stood there and I set up my stuff and I practiced five balls, which was probably the hardest thing I was doing at that time. And set up my stuff and practiced five balls. And that was at midday. And at 5 p.m. when there was no one left, I did a show. <laughs> I made 12 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> and um, to and about 15, 16 people. Yeah. And the next day, went out at midday, packs of people coming past. Did the same thing. Waited till five because I was so nervous to walk on. Yeah. Waited till there was no one around. Yeah. And made 12 pounds again. Went, okay, this works. Yeah. <laughs> I can get an income here. Uh-huh. So then this guy saw you do the show? or you, he just No, none you? of them saw me. They saw me later on, like six months later or whatever. But yeah. from that point onwards, I worked at least every Saturday in right. Cambridge. Huh. And holidays, I worked every day. Yeah. And then, yeah, I started going to a school in Cambridge and joined Cambridge Youth Theatre, but doing backstage. I've always done lighting operation. Right, yeah. <clears throat> it's good to have all that. And that's where I got to go to Edinburgh for the first time. Uh-huh. I was doing lighting on a show. Yeah. So how long were you in the UK for, away from Melbourne? Three years. 16, 17, 18. Oh, right. I moved back to Australia in about October. Were you um, missing it? Were you missing Melbourne? In the, no. No? Not at all. I love Melbourne. As soon as I got back to Australia, I gravitated back to Melbourne. But um, but you weren't missing the, the, the scene and, and I'd moved. from the guys? And I'd moved, like, literally from 11. And just a couple of years move, six months move, a couple of years move, six months move. So you're just used to it. And at that point, yeah, there was no email. I never yeah. wrote letters to people. No. So... I just always adapted to the new place and right. immersed myself there. <laughs> yeah. But you didn't mind. I mean, it just seems like, you know, being as young as you are and, and you meet all these guys and you start learning from them right away, that's an exciting new thing where you can actually take a skill that you had as a hobby and turn it into work yeah. that you leave that behind and it doesn't... You're okay. You're okay with that. Uh, I wasn't okay with it in the boarding school. Yeah. I went nuts. I bounced yeah. off the walls. Yeah, well, you weren't. Uh, you weren't allowed outside. Like, it was January. The sun went down at, like, 3.15. School <coughs> finished at 4.30. Yeah. And you're not allowed outside the school building after dark. I went nuts. Yeah. I, yeah. So it was mostly you were just going nuts because you were in a, not in a good place. Like, the school sounded yeah. like shit. you're but, locked in. But not, you weren't missing... It, it, it was the ability to go out and do stuff and yeah. go out. In Melbourne, for me, was beautiful it's still my favorite place uh-huh. growing up yeah and my parents were like be home by dark so i'd finish school go out do some shows spend it in time zone yeah <laughs> catch a train back home do it again the next day so i was either training or street shows and your parents so how did they feel about what you were doing were they excited about it were they uh, yeah worried? they were great 
15th birthday, dad bought me five perfect clubs. Uh-huh. Um, like, it was standard. They encouraged you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was, it was so just... always supportive. It was always a hobby. And they paid for the classes with Circus Oz and they, like, yeah, they yeah. were very supportive of it. That's awesome. But I was also maths, physics kid and get good marks in school and whatever else. And they're like, yeah, he's going to do some engineering or something like that. So your family's <laughs> loaded with brains, basically, what it sounds like. My dad's he's- very, very, very good. And my mum's probably smarter than him. Yeah. She certainly got better marks than he ever did. Right. So they just assumed, or correct me if I'm wrong, that like you would just fall into a yep. normal job. and It was automatic. I was and that was just something that you liked to do, and they were fine to support that. Yeah. It's good to have an arts yeah. background, but they knew, well, he's going to have a proper job. And yeah. It was automatic. I was always going to university. That yeah. was requirement. Right. And I ended up coming back to Australia. I always knew which degree I was going to do. And I came back and did backstage theatre. So when you finished in Cambridge, you were 18, and then you moved back to Australia. When I finished in... So you finished My parents school. kept leaving the country on me. Um, <laughs> they left you there? Yes, they left the country. <laughs> what the hell? When I was in Melbourne, because of the, the years, because of the, the northern summer, southern summer. Yeah. So when I was in Melbourne, the school I went to for two years, uh, where I was training and doing all this stuff... Uh, I was boarding there for six months because they left the country to Cambridge. Uh-huh. Then when they left Cambridge, I still had six months to go as well. So I was boarding there for the last six months. But, yeah, I just said to the boarding master, like, is there anything else? And he's like, well, there's the graduation ball and there's some other things. Because they finish early, they do the exams early. So there was another month and a half of school but there was nothing really for me to do. And I went, great, I'm gone. Mm-hmm. And started hitchhiking around England. Ah. I went straight to Stratford, did street shows in Stratford. But Is that was your plan to do street shows? Yes, 100%. I'd already done one Edinburgh Festival. And oh, yeah, so go back to that. So your first time in Edinburgh was... Uh, 16. But you, and, but you were... Uh, for stage uh, for, yeah uh, I went up there with Cambridge Youth Theatre which was yeah. sponsored by Prince Edward I met Eddie up there that was fun <coughs> okay with a load of police and dogs growling at me because my bags stunk of kerosene uh-huh. <laughs> but I was lighting on two different shows that Cambridge Youth Theatre was doing and we so got this, sponsored this like up to Edinburgh and like early 90s uh, 92 92 yeah and I ended up with getting up early in the morning and doing street shows at the mound. Ah. And then uh, 3.30, I think my show was. So 2 o'clock, I'd leave and do lighting on the 3.30 show. And these two shows would alternate days. So were, it was fun. You got 15, the 15-minute 15 changeover in theatres there. And so you would do your street shows in the early afternoon? Do the lighting for the yeah, show? Yeah, 11 a.m. and 12 o'clock. Yeah. And then um, go see shows at night. And then... Go see shows at night after I'd finished. My and what was your show like at this point when you're in Edinburgh? Is it still the same thing you're doing in Cambridge? Like this? Uh, it was. Balls, clubs, torches? Kind of uh, thing? Yep, always finishing with the fire. Did 20, lots and 30 lots of fire. Show. Yep, 30 minutes, uh-huh. pretty much. Quite a lot of talking. No. I started swallowing fire at, yeah, I can't remember 16 or 17. But that's because I'd finish and hold a torch above my head while I'm collecting the hat. Uh-huh. And there's a 
homeless guy in Cambridge, drunk homeless guy who hated me all the time. And he walked past and went, stick it in your mouth, you prick. <laughs> and it was a tiny little torch and the flame was almost out. And I went, okay, and yeah. I did it. Yeah. And I doubled my hat. And I went, yeah. Okay, let's do that more often. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, it was still the five bulls, four clubs, three flaming torches. It's the base show. Yeah. Yeah. And who and else? And then Swallow Fire to finish it. Right. Which you would do here, but I hadn't seen you do that before. I stopped doing it in 99. I stopped all fire in 99. Yeah. Basically, the development of the show, it was, I got banned from fire in Cambridge. Okay. And I just, Cambridge was my pitch for two and a half years. Yeah. And you were and I was the only, only one doing it. Yeah. Every Saturday, three, four shows. And he started doing it early in the day, not at five o'clock when there was no one there. You started really yeah, I started at Saturday. You got, you got your balls and you yeah. said, okay. Once I started regularly doing it, I'd go out, I'd do Saturday morning, go do three shows, and then the 15-minute, the corn exchange is a theatre there, and it was a dead-end street that it's on, and the doors were always open, and they'd have interval, and they'd all be getting champagne and whatever else. <laughs> And I'd stand in this dead end street and just go, right, so ladies and gentlemen, the interval entertainment's about to start. Everyone come out here, right? And they'd bring their drinks out. They'd stand in the street and I'd do a 15 minute show. And when I heard the bells go for come back in, performance is about to start, I'd swallow fire, hat them. Yeah. It was always one of my best shows. You know, Will did that in New York. And intermissions on the yeah. Broadway shows. It's a great show. <laughs> it's like really it's short. It's always sidewalks. the highest, highest paid show. Yeah, it's crazy. But then I got banned from fire uh, by this one policeman and mm-hmm. got into massive arguments. Like, yeah. It was like two months of us going head to head. Yeah. And he said, you, you can't do fire here. Mm-hmm. And I went to the council. Uh, well, the first thing I did was go into my dad's garage and got a claw hammer and a hatchet. And I juggled a claw hammer, a hatchet, and an unlit flaming torch imagine how hot this would be if I could light it yes yeah, yeah. all of that naked flame I actually I, I had fun taking the piss out of this cop at one point I put bow ties on the torches and said they're not naked flames anymore they're dressed they've got bow ties <laughs> yeah just so many arguments with Scarface was what the homeless guys nicknamed him uh-huh. and I went to the council and they said we've got no problems with you doing fire so I kept doing it he came up said no went to the police and they said no we've got no problems with you having fire just this one guy and it's just this one guy and if he wasn't on I'd get away with shows and if he was on he'd shut me down mm-hmm. and the police said go to the fire department and I went to the fire department and they said oh, go to environmental protection agent I went look council sent me to police police sent me to you I ended up doing a show in front of Cambridge fire station for all of the firemen they said that's great you're fine and this guy still shut me down and I finally went to his captain and his captain took me into a back room and went, look, he's scared of fire. He's actually got a phobia against fire. I will change his beat. So on Saturdays, he doesn't walk past that area. Oh, wow. But I, I then had a claw hammer and a hatchet and a hey, flaming man, torch. opportunity presents itself and, you know, one way or and another. And the show became five bulls, the claw hammer, the hatchet, and a machete I ended up with after a while. Yeah. A proper army machete. Yeah. And then the three torches, always finishing with that and the fiery. Right. Yeah. So so now so now we jump back again to Edinburgh, you go into the mound doing shows and now this is what you have. You have your your machete, the claw hammer, yep. 
and then the, the three torches. Who else was doing shows then? Um, Great Dave was there. Windsor was there. And everyone um, was working down at the Mount, or were the people on the High Street as well? Uh, the High Street wasn't open at all. Okay. So at that point, it was just the Mount. There was one, the top pitch, known as the Big Pitch, mm-hmm. what you now know as Mound 2. Yeah. There was no pyramid. Okay. And that's where all of the Covent guys, all of the big, big shows went. There was a kind of a secondary pitch. If you couldn't get a main show, you went onto that. And then there was about eight other pitches floating around. It was just wherever you could find a space. And this is, so you're 18, right? This is your senior year high school? Uh, yeah, by that point. Yeah. But <clears throat> I found a spot right where the toilets are at the mound. Mm-hmm. And I used to work little shows in the furthest corner away from the big, big shows. And Sam and Andy. Sam and Andy. Andy used to climb that columns and it would wipe the mount it would just clear all of these other shows to run to do it and something I worked out very fast is to go watch this this is amazing by the time you get there it'll be over but if you stay here with me we get the best view like this is it and he'd go up there and he'd be doing a bottling speech and I'd be doing a speech explaining who he was and then he'd juggle up there and it'd be great and every time he did that I'd double my hat so people wouldn't go on when Sam and Andy were on. I'd always go on oh, yeah. <laughs> and see if I could catch their finale. Yeah. But I never worked the main pitches, never went near them. But you hung out with all those guys. You would go talk to them or watch them? Um, what did you fail? Occasionally. Through? Yeah. The, the biggest one, when I started hitchhiking, when I left Cambridge and started hitchhiking, I made it to Bath and met Noel Britton, spent two or three weeks there with Noel, memorized Bizarre Bath, just one of my favorite things in the world is that. But he the taught me, than he taught me a lot. He was one of the ones, one of the first guys to sit down and just go, this is how it works, this is how uh-huh. it works. Really? And then from there, I went to Coven. Uh-huh. And this is all before Edinburgh. So then working at Coven is when I got to know all of these other people. And luckily, Great Dave and Windsor were my additions, and they'd see me in Edinburgh the year before. So they knew I had a pretty solid show. Yeah. Certainly nothing big or special, but... Yeah, it was there. It was. Well, you're a young kid. You're yeah, eighteen. And you're trying. Yeah. Well, how old those guys wouldn't have been much older than you anyway. Like in the early. It 20s? seems like they were a lot older than me. Yeah. It's only now that I find out that they're only four <laughs> five years. Yeah. But still, at eighteen, and then there's a, like yeah. a twenty-five year old or whatever. That's yeah. Twenty-four year old. That there's a, there's a difference there. And that was when I really started working. That year I hit um, Covent Garden for ages, Amsterdam. So wait, so you're in Edinburgh, that's August. And then you did Covent Garden. Then then Covent Garden, and then you went to Amsterdam. So you spent that... Uh, I would have been in Amsterdam in July or whatever, during that time. Oh, before before Edinburgh. I actually did Amsterdam when I was 16 as well. Went on a holiday with a mate and worked light supply. That was funny, having all of the guys. Again, they said, do you want to go in the drawer? And I'm like, no you guys are better like you take the good slots and I'd sit in a cafe across the road from it and either Frank or Marty would come over and go we're finished you can do it and I'd work till like one thirty in the morning so it sounds like everybody was generally friendly and helpful. yeah most of them yeah. Covent Garden wasn't skate naked in Bath hated me uh-huh. but I found out later on that's just how they treated everyone at that time any yeah. new performer turns up and that's where Noel Britton and Sally Kimpton, who's an Australian performer, were sitting there. They were lovely to me. 
and they basically gave me the rundown. Like, that was the first time I sat and went, right, this is what I'm doing. Uh-huh. I'm out of my comfort zone. What do I do? Yeah. And just hitchhiked around, hitchhiked around, and default kept bouncing back to Covent Garden between wherever I went, make enough money from Covent to go somewhere. And you worked at West Piazza in Covent Garden? Yeah. How many people were there then? Um... Was that dry at like 8 in the morning or something like that? There was no draw. Was no it draw. was sleep there. I was sleeping there. My yeah. my address... Oh, it was, it was in a row. first in the queue. Yeah. Or something, yeah. And then at 10 o'clock, you all come in and see who signed up first. Uh-huh. And at 10 o'clock, they'd go, right, number one, pick a time. And they'd write the times down at 10. Yeah. I slept rough a lot during that time. And uh, it was second park bench along St. Paul's Churchyard, Covent Garden. I was first every day, which started to piss a few people off because <laughs> I'd just sleep there. I'd jump the fence into the graveyard of St. Paul's and just sleep on a bench. And Pepe was probably the only other one because I'd always be there. You couldn't sign up before midnight. So at midnight, I'd always walk across and I'd see Pepe coming across normally to the wrong direction, wrong fence. Mm-hmm. Pep, it's over here. Mm-hmm. I always let him sign up first. So it was always Pepe, then me. Right. And I'd always pick the show after Pepe because no one else wanted it. But it was perfect. He did these beautiful mime shows yeah. to 800 people yeah. and leave people wanting more. Mm-hmm. And then I'd walk on and do a verbal juggling show, which is totally different. Yeah. And always did well after Pep. That's a crazy time. Like, that's really bold that you just were... Just went for it like that. Yeah. That's brave. I'm sleeping on the streets of London. It's pretty stupid. It is stupid, but that's what I'm saying. It's like you you decided that... Actually. It wasn't like you had this passion from when you were a little kid. You just picked it up at 11, you're juggling, and then at 18, you're sleeping on a park bench to sign up to do shows in Covent Garden. Yeah, because there's no way I could afford... I think it was 80 pounds a night in the YMCA or something stupid. Yeah, but you could have done anything else. Yeah. And my parents went around they were in Australia yeah it was just me I could yeah. do whatever I wanted right that's and I love street right. shows I love performing right like that was always right I'm gonna go as many places as I can now yeah that's something else so you spend that several months out there in Europe and then you go back home or back to Melbourne uh, my parents had moved to Sydney so when I first got back I went to Sydney mm-hmm. And almost immediately went to see a mate of mine who we used to train together. We used to do theatre sports together. So weren't you saying you were going to go to university, though? Didn't you university is starts in February. And you've applied. And so where do you want to go? I, I was jumping Sydney, Melbourne, Sydney, Melbourne on the overnight bus. Ugh. Like, I'd spend two weeks there, two weeks, like, always staying with my parents in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And, yep, walked into the... Lighting sound stage. The university was in Melbourne. University is in Wollongong, south of Sydney. Oh. And that's why I literally have not left Sydney since then. But wait, what are you going back to Melbourne? Back and forth because that was that was my favourite pitch. That was my favourite Oh, so, so you're going to Melbourne to do street shows. I was going, and going, going back to, to street Sydney shows. To to I was working Circular Key in Sydney, but I've always loved Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who else was working Circular Key at that time? Um, Sally Kinton which was great to know someone from two weeks in Bath with her and I, she was at the Edinburgh Festival that year 
and then the first person I meet in Sydney was her. What's she doing? I never heard of her. She does stand up in Brisbane now. Uh-huh. She's been a stand up comedian for a long time, but she was a unicycle juggler. Yeah. And uh, Ian, Ian Kendall. Yeah. He was at the first Edinburgh with me. Mm-hmm. We both started, that's where he first started performing. And it was my first Edinburgh. So he came out that year. Uh, don't remember who else was there, but there was a crew of us. So this is like 93? This end of 93, yeah. 93. Oh, and the end of 90, the Christmas of 93. My parents and all of my family's from Brisbane. So every Christmas we went up to Brisbane. So I worked Surface Paradise for December. Windsor was there. Who else? There was a chunk. First time I met Tony Living Space. Yeah. Was that year. Yeah. First time I met Shane. And he was about 15 at that point. Mm Mm-hmm. I had a great time up there and I was uh, sleeping on Windsor's floor for most of the time. Uh, There was something where the council had employed performers to come there and they weren't paying them but they were giving them accommodation and Mm. everyone was busking. Yeah. So there was like five or six performers all in one set of flats. Yeah. Yeah. Ashley. First time I met Ashley, first time I met Damien, first time I met, yeah, all of the Australian performers. And then all this, the, as far as the Australian street scene started, was that, you know, all these guys, is this all from Expo 88? And um, Rusty Balls was Expo 88. All of the other guys were later. But as I mean, as far as, as like, there being a resurgence, uh, no, I shouldn't say resurgence, a, uh, an explosion, it seems like, like this all... That was, it was because the... As far as I know, because I'm 14 at this point. Yeah, you didn't. As far as I know, and I've checked, is a load of performers came out from North America and Europe to work Expo 88. The next summer they came out again. And then the next summer they came out again. So as they're hitting other cities over those next couple of years. Yeah, like kids like you are 90s. seeing them going, oh, wait, I want to do this. Yeah. And then a few years later, they're... And actually, a lot of them weren't kids, like 23, 24-year-olds yeah. who had the skills, who could right. do unicycle or whatever. Yeah. There would have been a circus community, pretty strong circus community in Australia back then. There was the carnival circuses. There was the traveling. Yeah. There was monoxide, circus Oz. <clears throat> but again, I was locked into my little yeah. world, which is street right. and, and acrobatics around. and impro in yeah. Melbourne. And then afterwards, when I came back, I was street and then started university, beginning of 94, mm-hmm. and was locked into that. Still, every weekend, every Friday night, catch a train to Sydney, a train. which is an hour and a half, work Bondi Beach, midnight, late night, outside the Bondi Hotel every Friday night, Saturday Circular Quay, Saturday night King's Cross, Sunday Circular Quay, catch the last train on Sunday, University Monday morning, <laughs> and did that every weekend. Wow. So when were you going to Melbourne then? Uh, once I started university, not really. Yeah. That was it. Um, holidays, I would, if I got a chance. Yeah. But really moved away met my wife started hanging out with her and she's Sydney based all the way and yeah really started hanging out that's the living in Sydney yeah once I finished university and doing Edinburgh every year as well uh huh still doing Edinburgh and I'm doing a theatre degree so 
I'd make sure that all of my required shows, you have to do X amount of shows, you have to do a sound thing, you have to stage manage, yeah. And I was also doing a minor in acting, so I was learning voice, movement, dance, um, all of these things at the same time. And the voice training and movement, really, mm-hmm. it's wonderful stuff. Yeah. And what is it, a two-year or four-year degree? A uh, three-year degree. Three-year degree. Yeah. Neither two nor four. It's no. three. <laughs> I guess. Most degrees, most bachelors are... are three years Um, in Australia yeah I finished that and worked in the industry backstage for about six months so let me ask you if you're doing these street shows all the time and you're making money presumably at this point you have a show that's working yeah yeah you're going to university because you're enjoying what you're learning did you I I love backstage I'm like was really really good as a lighting operator lighting's the reason why I went and did this degree but yeah the expectation was always that from from the first time I went to Edinburgh I realised I can do street shows alongside a theatre show right you get to do two things you really love two things and there's the extra money and street shows are so um, adaptable they can fit around whatever time frame of anything else yeah so the whole plan was to work lighting and sound and have street shows constantly there Mm mm-hmm I then came out of university, and that was, I was still doing the university, thinking that's the way it's going to be. I came out, and I'd done backstage theatre longer than street shows. I've done it since 11, and love it. And it was always amateur companies. I then come out and work in professional Sydney theatre and found it the bitchiest industry I've ever come Uh across. The fact that... Here's the turn. Yeah, someone's... Uh, someone's got a problem and they're doing something so they're not they haven't done their job for preparation because they're fixing something else yeah and in any other company you'd get up and do that job for them yeah and people are going no no that's not my job and I'm like the audience is coming in in two minutes mm-hmm. we need to sweep the stage sweep the stage so yeah and it just it, it was ridiculous and it was just blame everyone else I'm just doing my job no that's not my fault drove me nuts yeah and I lasted six months and went nuts um, just doing street shows right and the other thing is most of the jobs I was getting at that point were working late late hours so trying to get up and do Sunday morning street shows which are the best times just didn't work all of a sudden I couldn't do the street shows alongside it so I dropped the theatre and moved into permanent and what was your show like at this point? What were you doing? Uh, it was strong. It was... I uh, can't remember what year. I think it was 95. I was in Edinburgh. I'd always juggled the hatchet ever since. Uh-huh. And I was walking up the high street you in Edinburgh. You that cop. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Scarface. Scarface. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I was walking up the high street in Edinburgh, and I looked into one of the tourist shops and saw one of those medieval axes, and yeah. I went... I can do that. I can juggle that. <clears throat> Bought it yeah. for 70 quid, I think it was, and was performing it immediately. Yeah. And then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. That one was a cheap one. First time I dropped it, it broke, but I'd been using it for about four weeks by that point. And yeah. Like, yeah, I want that. So 95, you started with the balances. Um, got rid of the fire eating at the end? Uh, well, the idea was to get rid of the fire eating. It took me until 99 Basically, I juggle the axe with two flaming torches. Okay. I'd finish, do the triple spin over the head, finish, and oh, 
always swallow fire. I can't help it. If there's fire on stage, I'm going to swallow it. Mm-hmm. I'm good at it. I like it. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, it was only... I did Edmonton Fringe in 99, and one of the pitches didn't allow fire. And Al said, here, use these knives. It's a primetime show. Take that show. I did the one show without fire in Edmonton it was the highest paying show I did for the whole festival and that's in August 99 I think October Al came back to Australia and handed me three Dubai knives and said these are for you drop fire and I didn't use fire from then onwards until a year and a half ago when well no exactly a year ago now when I ripped my hand apart. Yeah, well, let's go into that story. <laughs> you ripped your hand apart. And you're here to... Shouldn't have happened. Yeah. It should not have happened. <clears throat> yeah. I've done the trick nine and a half thousand times. It's a safe trick. It should not have happened. So let's go back. You're performing Circular Key? Uh, Darling Harbour. Darling Harbour. Summer nights. 18th of December. 14? 14. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, I'd been working every night doing the same show every night same time slot the sunset right on sunset and I catch the axe on my shoulder every single time my hand is right next to my shoulder and I've got the amnesia whatever thing from trauma I can't remember what happened I remember the axe entering my hand yes I don't remember anything before that right so I don't remember letting go of the axe I don't remember juggling it all I remember is it entering my hand and from that point onwards do you remember anything from the show and my hand was in the hit look pose my hand was straight out in front of me and it's never it's never been there and it shouldn't have been there right and the only logic behind that I can think of is that I thought something was wrong and was worried about the audience and was trying to push the axe onto the ground away from people Uh and I've put my hand onto a massive hook uh-huh. And the hook has rotated through my hand and torn the muscles out of my hand. And it, and it went straight through and the axe... A, a hook entered one side, came out the other side, and it's cutting on the way. That's all cutting yeah. on the way. And then the weight of the axe, it's it's oh. rotated through my hand yeah. and then just torn everything out. Right. So, yeah. So then, so you, so now your memory is, your hand's up there. Yeah. It's My bleeding. Hands. No one's, uh, no one saw it. No, no one in the audience noticed. They didn't notice that you dropped the axe? It's my finale. Yeah. And my show is so much focused on the talk that the tricks aren't important. Right. So tricks are not important. Here's the finale. But so they responded when entered, you the axe. Entered, entered my hand above my head. Yeah. Left my hand when my arm came down. My hand went straight into my pocket. I said, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, have a great Christmas. And all that was going through my head is look for something to absorb the blood. And I've got a big, fluffy black hat. So I picked up my big, fluffy black hat that I collect money in. Did you say that something's happened? No. 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 I, I literally just went, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Have a great Christmas. Hands goes into the pocket. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Um, I hope you... Oh! And picked up my hat. And by the way, please come forward. And I wrapped the hat around my hand and collected in the hat while bleeding into the hat at the yeah. same time. And actually, two people noticed. One was an emergency nurse. How fortunate. 
and one was a French fireman, <laughs> 24-year-old French fireman. Okay. They were both wonderful, but collected the hat, made exactly the same money as I made every other night. I've learnt you never show the audience blood if you can avoid it. No, I know. They don't want to see it. They, like, they do not want to see blood. Yeah. So I, I hit it straight away. Right. And had no idea how bad it was. So you're gripping your hat. Yeah. It's absorbing the blood from your yeah. gashed open hand. Yeah. This woman comes over to you first or the fireman who comes over to... Uh, well, everyone came forward to pay, to pay, pay. Right. And I just hear this voice behind me very quietly in my ear going, is your hand okay? And I'm going, thank you, thank you. No, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and by the time I'd finished collecting... Did you feel pain yet or are you no, still in shock? No, at no point in any of this did ah, I feel pain. Really? Yeah. By the time I got to the hospital, they put me on painkillers through all operation and everything. So you're just in shock the whole time? Um, yeah. Damn. But she came back with a towel that she'd bought and wrapped my hand in a towel, took a look at it, went, you need stitches. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's happened before, I know. But nothing this bad had ever happened. What had happened before? Uh, I've got um, three stitches at the base of my thumb from uh, the battle axe. I've got five stitches along my forehead from the axe. I've got eight stitches in my leg from a machete. That was when I was 18 in Melbourne. So cutting yourself with your props is... Even my wife, she picked me up and she's like, yeah, okay, it happened. Like, drove me to the hospital, uh, to a little medical center, which is a a little secret in Sydney. If you need a couple of stitches, you can go to this little medical center. You'd never have to wait because no one knows about it. And they took one look and unwrapped my hand and went, we can't deal with this. You need to go to plastic surgery. We cannot. And my wife looked at it and went, if I'd known it was that, I would have taken it to the big hospital straight away. So she didn't even look at it. She just came and picked you up. No, it was wrapped. It was wrapped. Yeah, I'll wrap it and tell you. Um, and she was totally calm until she saw it. Yeah. And the muscles were literally hanging out. Of oh, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, bit of fun. Yeah. Four months later, I can work again. Yeah, so what, those four months, did you do a lot of uh, writing, um, a lot of thinking? A lot I did of, a lot of writing. I did a lot of therapy. The one that I worked on more than anything is once I could start moving it again, was did all of the exercises. It's my life. It's my hand. I have to do this. Yeah. I worked really, really hard at all of that. When you went into the hospital, I guess the first time when they said they couldn't help you, did you tell them what happened? Yeah. Written down on a medical report. (laughs) I wonder if I can remember the phrasing. It's just the most beautiful thing in the world, (laughs) and they wouldn't let me have it. I really wanted to get it so I could remember it properly, but it was severed, blah, 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 with a battle axe. (laughs) This is his living. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that was perfect. That was like, (laughs) severed the hand with a battle axe. This is his living. Yeah. But told them, showed a video of me doing the show and showed the axe to the surgeon this is a day later I was in hospital for a while waiting for surgery and luckily I got a bloody good surgeon and an incredible hand therapist right uh, she was best she so did they say like we should be able to get you back to the surgeon afterwards came and saw me just before I was discharged from the hospital and said like there wasn't much muscle left and he's really? like you can build up what's left and get some strength back but it's just holding on if you 
do anything to rip the internal stitches, I can't put it back again. And you won't use your thumb. Right. So it was locked for uh, two, two and a half months. Yeah. Of just don't just move let it. it. Yeah. Don't do anything to it. Mm-hmm. Don't like lean on things. Don't don't touch it. Don't. Yeah. That was the scariest one. Yeah. I've just because I've had a lot of injuries. I've performed on broken ankles. I've performed with dislocated shoulders. I've like. Jesus. But this is the one where the guy just went. If you fall and lean on it. You're gonna tear, You're gonna tear the internal stitches, yeah. and we can't. There's yeah, not enough we can't muscle cut left. Open and try yeah. To, yeah, there's not enough muscle left to do it again. Yeah. So. Shit. Yeah. So was, you went through the process, the recovery, yeah. and then coming back into performing again. What was your your first show back? What were you? I went straight to a festival, which is. Easter, it's on, it's like being set up right now. It's coming up this weekend, so one year ago now. What um, is that one in? Um... It's the National Folk Festival in Canberra. Oh, okay. And it's a beautiful little, you know, fiddles and squeeze boxes yeah. and, and a lot of circus. Yeah. And I'd been invited to that before I did my hand. But I knew that was a safe spot, like it, it, beautiful audiences. And lots of people around me that I knew, lots mm-hmm. of performers who I've known forever. Yeah. In case anything actually went wrong. But honestly, first time back. You didn't do the battle axe. Yeah. You did. Ah, I'm not using my big axe anymore. My wife put a circular saw through the handle. <laughs> Said <laughs> you're not using that again. Right. <laughs> like, we could have put it on the wall. We <laughs> have, like, it didn't it's have to go actually the, take the, the handle off museum. It. Come on. and But she knows me. She knows I would pick it up again. Yeah. And I'm very, very close to picking it up again anyway. Yeah. But wait, what, your first show back, you were still juggling... I got um, sent by... Idris sent me a link to Three Finger Juggler, which I also found quite ironic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) After slicing my hand open, he sends me to a company called Three Three Finger Finger Juggler. Yeah. And I'm using one of their battle axes at the moment, which is the same as... And that that was what you first... It's the same as a duvet knife instead of a real one. Yeah. Yeah. Not happy about it, but hey, it's on fire. And I'm not doing the same trick. I'm not doing the triple over the head. I'm just doing a pirouette with it. Right. And just learn how to sell it better. Yeah. Yeah. I thought when we were in Edinburgh in this, this past summer, you were finishing with fire. I'm still doing a fire eat afterwards. No, I mean, I thought you were juggling fire. The axe is on fire. Oh, okay. See, I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah I saw axe. it here. I saw it here. Yeah, I know. The, the yeah. one axe has the, it's, the wick on the end. exactly the same as you're watching here. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then, so then you decided, well, if I'm going to use fire on my axe, I might as well eat it again. If I'm going to use fire, I'm going to use fire all the way. Okay. And build a crowd with fire, have fire all the way through the show, juggle a flaming battle axe, and swallow fire to finish. So a slight restructuring. Yeah. But the biggest thing for me is I've worked more shows in the last year than I've done for like three years. I can use my hand. I can perform. Yeah. So I'm taking every possible show. Yeah. I'm working weekdays at Circular Key, which no one touches. Right. Because you saw that you couldn't do it for so long. I can, and now I can you work. Can. I can work. I yeah. can do it. I love it. Yeah. And that that's the greatest thing about it is just me coming out and anytime anywhere now whereas like before it's like oh it's not really a good time maybe I'll wait now it's every chance I get every show 
give me more shows. Right. I love it. Because it was taken away from you, so now you yep. realize it. And the possibility, and the possibility that I would never use the sound. Yeah, that's heavy. The ability to grip, <laughs> the ability to make a fist, the ability yeah. to juggle. Well, you need to still do lighting, though. Every time I'm on stage, I love it. I yeah. just go. I, yeah, and I can do lighting. You had something yes. you could fall back on. <laughs> I can do lighting. Yeah, yeah. So going through, um, you know, we we're talking about the people that you met along the way. Who would you say? You mentioned Noel Britton. Who would you say that's one of your bigger uh, influences? He just said, Will, you kind of used that. Rex Boyd, Drew Franklin, William Lee, Waldo. Those guys were the first ones, yeah. really, the first ones. Yeah. Didn't talk to Mr. Peepy, didn't talk to any of the guys at Expo 88. was just another kid in the front row. But those guys in Melbourne really helped. Yeah. Don Ferry, not in performance, but in attitude to other performers. Uh-huh was oh, one of the most beautiful important. men in the world. Yeah. Because I hit Covent Garden, and honestly, Pepe taught me very, very well by giving me shit every day. Mm-hmm. Just ripping shit. No heckler can affect me because Pepe said worse. And it was an interesting way to teach. It certainly worked. Not a lot affects me. But I think there's better ways. And then I met Tom, and Dom showed the better way of, yeah, helping people, explaining things, and that's probably why you, I mean, I find that you're very, um, you're very open to helping and teaching and yeah. guiding performers and yeah. Anyone wants information, I'll give it. Yeah. Secret pitches. Do you want to know a secret pitch? It's not secret anymore. Come yeah. on. Like, I think you share, you, you, you're, you have patience with people and you share the right information that they need to know for, for them yeah. and their show. More a lot of that's about reading people yeah. and knowing what they need <clears throat> at the time. Yeah. Not necessarily teaching them yeah. Not teaching them how to do street theatre, teaching them what they need right now. Yeah. A little change that will help now, tomorrow. Yeah, and I really for people listening and because take you the, to the next day. Your approach in talking with our performers, you you don't come across as uh, someone who has an ego or is pretentious about anything you, you want to share your knowledge of the art with everybody and there's a lot of respect that goes with that for you and I remember specifically you'll remember this we were in the, the what was the festival in uh, Sydney with the tent the Hoopla Festival the Hoopla and Idris and um, and uh, Josh Josh were uh, they were doing fireman. the yeah they were yeah Circus Fireman they were doing um, kind of Byron's Something from Byron. They were doing their saran wrap. Saran wrap. But they were doing something that Byron does. That was specific to when Byron does his escape. Yes. Then we were in the tent, and then someone said, someone needs to tell them that they've stole that from Byron. They shouldn't be doing yes. that. And then someone said, I think JP should tell. I think we all, I think we all disagree. Because <laughs> if JP tells them, they're not going to take offense to it. They'll listen. Yeah. And you did. and Because you can say it in a way that's, not, you know, you're, you're coming from a different place. Um, and they have respect for you and they know you and they he said I think they immediately they took it off their website and they sent an email apologizing to Byron yep yep at the time they thought just every escape did this right and it was specifically Byron and when I talked to them about it they said oh we watched Byron's video that's exactly where we got it from yeah and they're also lovely and they just went instantly super sweet instantly they went we we thought it was just how you do this escape yeah we didn't know it was specific to Byron yeah and yeah I didn't know that they sent the uh, letter of apology yeah that's really nice 
But I mean, we just—I think we all had agreed that you would have been the best person to explain that to them because of where you come from. As you know, you're always—you're yeah. like a Yoda. That people go to you and ask you questions about things. Something you have passion and yeah. for. So what's next, JP? What do you uh, what do you see? What's the next thing? Do it again. Do it again. Just keep doing it. Do, do it, it again. Doing it. See as many shows as I can. Yeah. Pull my show apart. Redo it again. And you again you and again. talked a little years ago, and I think I, I bring this up on occasion about the catapult. Some catapult show, yeah. That you said you have it built, and you've talked I, about. Doing I did it. a catapult show for six months mm-hmm. in Australia. It was way too heavy to fly with, yeah. at the time. But it's still probably the strongest show I've ever done. Hmm. You ever think about going back to that, re- redesigning catapult so it's lighter? I have. I've created a light catapult, and I've performed with that around the world. It doesn't pay. Uh huh. It's woodwork at a festival, right. but it doesn't pay. And working in Sydney, I've got a wife, a child, I have to pay rent. Yeah. Sydney is one of the hardest places to actually earn a living. So I default to the strongest money show. Yeah. And then when I hit a festival is when I can play and muck around and not worry about the money. Especially Edinburgh is just one of my favorites. Do my show backwards in Edinburgh for fun mm-hmm. and get paid exactly the same amount as yeah. doing it forwards or improvising mucking around yeah and that clowning is so much fun that's what I want to be doing but I'm locked into Sydney most of the time so it always defaults back to the highest money now. yeah but why do you think it's so hard to, to perform in Sydney or Australia in general what is it that attitude like it's called the school of street performing you go to Australia to it's, learn it's how the to attitude of Australians the general attitude of Australians is we don't care right right the joke is no worries mate like no worries we, we're, we're not worried by anything but actually what it is is we don't give a shit like the general general population does not care yeah and so when you go check it out I'm going to impress you they're going oh yeah whatever alright maybe we don't care uh-huh. I've seen rounds of applause in Boston like a big cheer from a crowd and I've seen people running from a block away because they think they're missing something and they run to a show and I've seen it in other places as well. But in Australia, you can have the biggest cheer in the world and Australians will go, oh yeah, something's happening over there. Might go over in, what, half an hour or so. Right now, I'm all right. Um, they, they, they would never go out of their way to run over and find out what's going on. Yeah. Because they don't care. Yeah. And it's about making them care. Right. If you can get them on your side, they're brilliant. Aussie audiences are great but you have to switch the mindset Mm -hmm. if they do finally stop and watch you the first thing that they do is fold their arms and go go on Mm -hmm. impress me then right and even if you do impress them they're like ah yeah that's it's not that good yeah Uh, they're very difficult to get on your side (laughs) but once they do commit to the show and go okay no I'm going to help you out then they're wonderful and yeah. they're great and they will pay. Yeah. But God, it's hard to get them on your side. Yeah. So then when you work anywhere else, it's easy because people are... I'm in Dubai. Want to be I'm in side. Dubai. Yeah. I'm working crowds that we worked yesterday who don't care 
and I'm getting them on my side. Well, they are not, easier than Sydney. No, they don't. Not I had everyone either. clapping, everyone cheering, everyone getting into yeah, it by the, the end of the show. Here, it's not they don't care. They don't understand. Yeah, it's like they they care. They're they're interested, but they don't know why or what's happening. Yeah, they're very confused, and it's easier to teach these people than Sydney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is so strange. Well, at least that. at least in Sydney they speak the same language. Here, this, uh, some people don't speak the same language. So I still find here a lot easier than Sydney. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any favorite shows? Any favorite um... Dan Nemo? Yeah. Dan Nemo as the intellect, the the what he does is just he's so wacky. Yeah, it's absurdism, yeah. and it's beautiful absurdism, yeah. and it is really my favorite. But I've got a hundred favorite shows, mm. really. Uh, the most perfect show I know of is Pete Dobbing. Mm. I think that's just beautiful, and if I can get front row of Pete Dobbing, I will. Yeah. Growing up, I was front row of any show Nick Nicholas did. Okay. For the intellect, for the like, how well it was done. Bill Ferguson for the same thing, just the intelligence, the yeah. the psychology behind that show is wow. Yeah. But every show I've got favourite bits favourite lines mm-hmm. from hundreds of performers I watch as many as I can and just adore them yeah I watched two minutes of Peter Post last night and that's the first time I've ever seen him work yeah and it's then I had to go to my show yeah and those two minutes were just beautiful yeah I watched this whole show beautiful twice. failure it's a beautiful great. failure yeah. beautiful clown yeah um, so much living fun. space pure oh yeah chaos yeah like so there's nothing locked down in that he has no idea what's going on well he does and have his risk pieces he's got yeah, his but there's it's the risk yeah. of standing there with nothing hoping something might happen mm. hoping looking for and because of that uncomfortableness and standing there doing nothing for so long yeah when it does come it's genius yeah. it's just amazing yeah your show Nigel is is just great. <laughs> it's just the most ridiculous stuff. It's pretty stupid, and I love it. Yeah, it's um, fun, but it's got to be Dan Nemo for just someone to watch again and again because it has the chaos of living space, and it has the intellect as well. Yeah, that I just adore. Yeah, do you have a, a memory of one of your particular shows that really stands out? I do it about once a year is I just don't open the case I actually spent six months of going how long can I go without opening the case and that's something Dom taught me as well basically Dom taught me clown really well but um, no props no standard lines how long can you stand there and just go in that uncomfortableness in that nothing's happening and it's past the funny and it's into something better bloody happen soon mm-hmm. and some days I'd be juggling within two minutes and some days I get to the end of the show without opening the case without pulling out a prop just depending on whether the audience worked or whether I was on but about once a year I find one of those shows which are just magic to me magic audiences magic moments where they are with you they'll let you play mm-hmm. they'll let you go yeah and then I go back to Sydney and default to danger juggling. Yeah, yeah it's just, <laughs> easy. Stay to script right. and get through it. Is. Yeah, get paid. One of the things that frustrates me about street theatres, you have to sometimes make things really obvious. 
and I think that it's not the same as it used to be. And I haven't been street performing for as long as you. I've only been like 15 years. You've been doing it since 90, what's like 20? 88. Well, yeah, I guess, oh, yeah, 88. <laughs> technically, yeah. Yeah, technically you were doing circles shows since, I don't know, two years after that. Right. Year, two years okay. after that. So over 20 years. Yeah. What's different? There is a difference, yes? There is a difference. The biggest difference is administration, but... I don't think that's what you're asking. No. But the biggest difference right now for me is like there's nowhere to do it. The pitches okay. are being shut down and that's administration problems. Right. But, but beyond the other that, difference, the other difference is um, I've got to say I, skills. I've got to say there are so many circus schools now and street theatre is well known. When I first started doing it, I had no idea that there were Covent Garden or anything like that. I just did it. I walked out because I had this skill and saw someone else doing it so I went out and did it but now there are people coming out of two year degrees in circus with major skills like the skills have jumped is the biggest one yeah. just high high skilled acrobats high skill balance juggling whatever and they come to the street to learn how to perform in front of an audience because you don't get that many gigs that you can go and practice at yeah that you can practice on the street so there's a huge number of people who don't know the theory of busking that don't know how to perform on the street yeah. but their skills are incredible so how do you think that affects the world of street theatre in general or does it Apart from having more performers, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which has always been a problem, but that's seven billion people in the world. It's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, now, apart from that, it's it's <clears throat> it's affecting it by raising the standard. I believe it raises the standard. Like other performers are going, God, we better get some more skills here. Right, uh, but but, the, but, but the, it also goes for me. I go the opposite way. I go into I want to do as little as possible to entertain these people to prove that it can be done without. Sleep. Right. This right. So this is what I'm saying. I, and I think you know, I listen to guys like Chris Chris Lynham and Nick talk about you know back in the day and how the things that they were doing on the street were. Just you could do anything. It was crazy. It was fun. It was freedom. And now I feel like it's so much more structure, and the audience has an expectation of a thing that they need to see, and that you don't have that freedom anymore to be as playful. Like on a on a busking pitch, like a yeah. People have learned a formula. Yeah, and the and formula works, and the formula makes money. Right. So so many shows have become closer and closer. And, like the audience is watching the same thing forty times on forty different shows. I think and it's that's losing what works. Yeah. But then there are still uh, as much as there's hundreds of performers being pumped out and, and heading the streets, the one that stay there, the ones that, that make it are the ones that do something different, are the ones that find the originality. Oh come on. You know that's not true. It is. There's so many shows that are just like the standard, the thing you yeah. do, then you do this thing, and they We've say got, all the things, and they're making money, so they're going to keep doing it. Over summer in Sydney, there were three circle shows different, and 
five breakdancing shows doing exactly the same formula. Yeah, well, that's breakdancing shows, that's the show. But we had five different breakdancing shows, and I had audience members coming up to me going, we walked from Pitt Street to IMAX to here to here. We saw three shows that were identical. We stopped for you. Yeah, and well, you know what? to me because I was different. You know what? That is unique then because people love watching the breakdancers. They will walk they through do. Central Park and they will stop at every single one of those shows and they'll stand there and watch them and they'll get abused by them and they'll, whatever, get fleeced by them. Yeah. But they don't have the patience to watch someone who's trying to do something that's more subtle or creative in Edinburgh I like picking the last show of the day or as, as close to the last the last three shows are just beautiful yeah and everyone else says there's more money and there's more people in the middle of the day and that's true but once people have watched the identical show however many times and then they see me I get paid better <laughs> yeah I like them to watch but I feel in Edinburgh five break dances before me yeah Edinburgh that feels a very different animal like they'll they're all happy to watch all the shows but like just a regular even like festivals in Canada I feel now are the people they have a shorter attention span for things they want to watch the big stunts the big tricks the the high skill shows they won't they don't want to watch a subtle patient uh, something that's not something that Danger. Something that killed me was uh, Leandro, who was a beautiful following Spanish clown. Uh And in the mid-90s, he was in... Mid-late 90s, he was in Sydney. And he did the biggest shows around. He did the the most massive, incredible shows around. And he never got paid for them. Never got paid for them. And it drove me nuts. And I'm doing this shitty danger show and getting paid triple what he gets that always always drove me nuts yeah but I know there's a balance between it and that's what I'm trying to do is as much clown as I can but I'm still I will give the punch at the end of it I will give the trick yeah but yeah I know what you mean I just think I just feel like now it's more I was just thinking because like when I was first working in Central Park like, I don't think I could do my straight jacket show the way I do it now in Central Park and get paid the same as I did when I first did it. Because I think people's attention spans are shorter. They're not going to be patient with my goofiness, my silliness. I think that's also you. Well, maybe it's also me. I don't know. There's the reason why I do my show backwards in Edinburgh, the reason why I muck around and do silly things is to prove that it can be done. Yeah, it takes work. It's hard, but also if you commit to it, and it will work. Yeah, but everyone's got one of these fucking things in their hand, their phone, and they're on it, and they're texting, and they're yeah. recording a show through it, and they don't have that. That's like when I was doing shows there, whatever, before cell phones were in everyone's pocket with like the internet on it. They would sit and watch a show. It wasn't anything to distract them. And I think with cell phones and iPads and whatever, there's so many more distracting things. Yes. And they could look you I mean, up while you're doing your show. They can look up Juggler and they could sit there and watch that instead of your show. Vaudeville, vaudeville was killed by film. Yeah. Do you think street theater is going to be killed by... I hope not. <laughs> but... Well, you're saying there's less... I think now. street theater is going to get killed by... Ad- Administration, yeah. Yeah. I, I do believe that. I yeah. believe that's... It's going to die faster than through cell phones and whatever else. 
I believe that you can get people off their phone mm-hmm. for that period of time. And I say it every single show. All the way through my show, I'm saying this is not YouTube. I don't believe in YouTube. I don't believe in these things. And of course I watch YouTube and yeah. whatever. But through the show, I'm going, this is real. You people. also talk about how these terrible smoking are. is. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is. It's terrible. It's absolutely awful. I think I went through a packet in this interview. You did. Um, that was good. But, uh, yeah, being able to say at the end of the show, that's the one that I send them home with, is this is real people. Yeah. Let's show the energy that a group of real people can do, not just on YouTube. Yeah. And I made something up yesterday at the beginning of the show was uh, this is a conversation between people if you don't understand what a conversation is between people uh, it's like Skype you know what Skype is yeah well this is the old version of Skype that (laughs) you guys may not have tried before it's called a conversation face to face Uh, that was my crowd build yesterday and that was a lot of fun and I've got to write that one down and remember that somewhere so it's nice yeah. you've got it on tape now. Yeah, you don't have to write down it's on tape. It's great. I, don't know, I just find it, I just feel like it's, I don't know, like that, the art of it is kind of... You've always got to push the art, and the art will change, but yeah, you've always I got to... I just, I just keep seeing more shows that aren't inspiring. However many years ago, 10, 15 years ago, there were five poles on my pitch and me. Yeah. And I'm a ground show with no big props. Yeah. And it frustrated the hell out of me that these guys would put up a poll and get an instant crowd. And I still made the same money, if not more, mm-hmm. than these guys would triple my audience. <clears throat> yeah. It took me longer and it's harder work. But I did it without it. Yeah. Um, I remember something you told me when we were in Antwerp when I met you when you talked about being on the ground. You're a ground show. And so when you're. He's like, because you were talking about Al, you know, Al's up high, everyone can see him, and he's going to get, like, lots of people going to come in and pay, like, but it might be small amounts, but you're on the ground, you're with the people, you have to look in their eyes, look yeah. in their eyes when you talk to them, and they're going to end up paying you more yeah. than if you're up high. Because as he's, you, you know, on, uh, on a height show, you're working with volume, with and on a ground show, you're working with connection. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I, I try to make a connection <clears> with anyone who's got an iPhone in their hand. Yeah. And if I make a connection, they start to listen to me yeah. instead of thinking about what's on Facebook. Yeah. I know. It's just tough. I yeah, just think it's a it different... It's, it's a hard. different... Yeah. It's much, much harder than getting a massive flamethrower and standing on top of a huge structure Yeah, with rock and roll music and... And a chainsaw. And a chainsaw. Yeah. It's a challenge of it. That's the easy way. Yeah. Um, so, lastly, what's your what's your what do you think your favorite thing about street performing is, or what is it about street performing that you love the most? People, audience, hmm. the amount of performers who walk on stage going, they're there for me, and that's not it. Performance is hospitality. You're there for them, and to have people at the end of the show walk away happy, friendly, like changed. The idea is I'm going to change the world 300 people at a time mm-hmm. because they like there's a when I first moved to Sydney there was a girl who would have been older than me like she would have been mid-twenties and she'd sit cross-legged in my show and she'd never clap never cheer never react she'd smile and she'd walk up and she'd give me five bucks and she was there every show 
for two, two and a half years. And at the end of it, she handed me an envelope and said thank you and walked away at the end of two and a half years. And I opened the envelope and it had a jester, weird Salvador Dali style jester with smile, it's not that hard, written across his teeth. Mm-hmm. And I opened it and she'd written a letter saying, two and a half years ago, I was standing on the wall of the Circular Key train station about to jump off and I looked down and you were there and I heard what you were saying and I laughed for the first time in years and I came down and I sat and I watched your show and I've watched it for two and a half years now and now I'm in a better place and I can get on with my life thank you and that's why you do it (laughs) you do it for people like that yeah it's awesome yeah it's one of the most amazing things on earth Mm-hmm. Sure is. Well, thanks for um, getting together and sitting down with a recorder in a hotel room in Dubai. Only took three years. I know. Yeah, thanks, JP. Yeah, thank you. It's a you pleasure, bro. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of the project at patreon.com backslash buskerstories. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment and leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well then, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And to close, we wanted to share the factor that J.P. Fields has contributed the most to his success as a street performer. It's about adapting. Street theatre is about being able to deal with any situation. Yeah. And I honestly believe I'm good at it because of moving, constantly moving. What do you mean? As a kid. Like, here, there's a new school. There's a new school. Go adapt to it. Right. Here, there's a new country. Go adapt to it. Mm -hmm. Here, there's a new situation. Go and... Yeah, being able to control anything that happens on stage and adapt to it and go with it. Yeah. On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, who captured this interview and handled the preliminary edit, and the rest of the staff of the Buscar Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening.
severed with a battle axe. <laughs> this is his living. <laughs>